It was the day of the big sale. Rumors of the sales and some advertising in the local paper were the main reason for the long line that formed in front of the store by 8.30, the store's opening time. A small man pushed his way to the front of the line only to be pushed back amid loud and colorful curses. On the man's second attempt, he was punched squarely in the jaw, knocked around a bit, and then thrown to the end of the line again. As he got up the second time, he said to the person at the end of the line, that does it. If they hit me one more time, I'm not opening up the store. <laughs> oh, some conflicts don't seem to be worth the effort. However, the warfare we are about to study should motivate us to press on. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. As we move from chapter 11 into chapter 12, we make a transition. The tribulation had commenced with the signing of the covenant between Antichrist and the nation of Israel for seven years. In the midst of that covenant, three and a half years through, the Antichrist will break the covenant with Israel. That is the period of time we are now embarking upon. It is called the Great Tribulation from Matthew 24, 21. We would know it also from Jeremiah 30 and verse 7 as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's an unprecedented time of distress. Unless those days were shortened, in other words, unless the tribulation were narrowed to that seven-year period, and particularly now to that last three and a half years, no flesh would survive. With that in mind, let me toss to you the focus question for today. How does the Christian overcome Satan? Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 12, beginning down in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman 
that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood with the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Please bow your heads as uh, I address the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for another time in your word. We are now coming upon holy ground and we are reminded of the conflict between good and evil, the powers of light and the powers of darkness. So Father, I pray that we would understand that as children of light, how to overcome the wicked one. Guide us and may this word be very instructive to us that we might understand that we don't fight for victory, but from victory. Speak to each heart, turn on the light, so to speak, that we can grasp the beautiful word of God here in Revelation 12. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our section of scripture, we have the war in heaven. That's Revelation 12, 7 through 8. The war in heaven. Notice verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. This is not just a battle fought in the sky, but heaven here has the definite article. It's to urano, the heaven. This is heaven proper. The warriors, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael leads the good angels in this fight. And by the way, only Michael is called an archangel. In uh, Jude 9, it says, yet Michael the archangel. Daniel chapter 10, in verse 13, calls him one of the chief princes. So there might be other archangels, but only Michael is given this specific designation. Uh, we learn from Daniel chapter 12 that Michael has a primary responsibility over the nation of Israel. We continue here, and the dragon and his angels fought. Who is the dragon? Down in verse 9, he's clearly identified as Satan. And by the way, I want to remind you that Satan and his angels are well organized. In Ephesians chapter 6, we learn we don't wrestle, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, a spiritual host of wickedness. Where? In heavenly places. But here's the good news, verse 8. But they did not prevail. The dragon, Satan, and his angels, the demons, are defeated. In other words, you might actually say that Satan and his demons had their wings clipped. Nor was a place found in them for them in heaven any longer. Satan has access into the presence of God until the midpoint of the tribulation. He was granted that access to God, I think, for two primary reasons. Number one, to give an account of his activities to God. 
in Job 1, 6 and 7, and then also over in chapter 2, same book, Job 1 and 2, we see that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord and Satan also. Satan is under the authority of God and apparently had regular times that he needed to report to God his activities. And that's what we have. So, Satan will have access to the presence of God until the midpoint of the tribulation. The second reason uh, that he seems to have access is to accuse the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, down in verse 10, he is called the accuser of the brethren. You recall back in Zechariah chapter 3 with Joshua the high priest, who was standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was at his right hand, what? To oppose him. That is the nature of the wicked one. So we need to understand that the war in heaven commences here in Revelation 12, 7, and 8. And then we transition down to verses 9 through 17, the warfare, where? On earth. There now will be five titles attributed to the devil to make sure we clearly understand who he is and he is identified throughout scripture. Here are the five titles. First of all, he's the great dragon. The great dragon. Um, the noun dracon, uh, some scholars believe, derives from the verb dare komai, which has the idea of to look at or behold. Perhaps the concept is that it, the dragon here is so very intimidating by his presence. Uh, he is our great adversary. Uh, we are told, and this same noun now appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Ezekiel 29.3 and Ezekiel 32.2 referring to the Pharaoh who is called a monster is how it's translated in our English Bible, at least in the New King James Version, but the adversary of Israel. So he's identified, first of all, as the great dragon. Number two, you recognize the expression here, he's that serpent of old. Uh, the verse clearly identifies Satan as the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, just for your knowledge's sake, the, the term serpent found here in Revelation 12.9 occurs 14 times from the Greek New Testament. It's used of literal serpents or snakes and then also of the wicked one. This same serpent of old is the one who deceived or beguiled Eve, 2 Corinthians 11, 3. So he's not only the great dragon, he's the serpent of old. And keep in mind, even being the serpent of old, he was cunning, he was crafty. That's how he's described in Genesis chapter 3. And number three, he is the diabolos, the devil. Uh, the word means slander and is used 35 times of Satan in the New Testament. The other three uses are interesting uh, because it refers, one, 
to deacons' wives who are told not to be slanderous. That's 1 Timothy 3, 11. And then it's also used of older women told not to be slanderous. Titus chapter 2 in verse 3. So we have the great dragon. He is the serpent of old. Number three, he's the devil. And number four, he is Satan. The term means adversary. Uh, that term is found over 50 times in the Bible. And we've got to keep in mind here that Satan really seeks to influence the saints. Uh, he had done that even with Peter. Remember, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God over Matthew chapter 16. But then when Jesus tells Peter that he is going to the cross, Peter opposes him. And recall what Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. We also see in Acts chapter 5 that it was Satan who had filled Ananias and Sapphira's hearts to be deceptive. So we have to be cautious of the influence of our adversary, Satan. Number five, and this might not be as clear from the English Bible, but he is the deceiver. Uh, the word deceiver gives us the English word planet, the cause to wander. Uh, notice here how broad the deceptive powers of Satan is. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, please. Revelation 20 refers to the future kingdom. Back in chapter 19, Christ comes back the second time, puts down his enemies, and then establishes his kingdom. The kingdom, we're told, lasts here for 1,000 years. That number is significant. It's used six times in Revelation chapter 20. Here now in Revelation 20, verse 3, an angel comes down from heaven and he cast him, Satan, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Notice here what happens as a result. So that he should deceive the nations no more. But you see the term there, deceive? But who does he deceive? The nations. He has broad influence. And then we have the same thing down in chapter 20 in verse 8. Because he's going to be held in captivity for a full thousand year period. But when he is released, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So Satan is also a deceiver. That is number five. And by the way, as we work through Revelation 12, 9, did you observe the words cast out? They occur three times. Three times from the verb balo, to cast or to throw. Uh, twice it's used of Satan and once of his demons. Uh, ultimately, Satan will be cast down three times to his final demise. Number one, he was cast out of heaven. Number two, he's cast out to the bottomless pit. That's for a thousand years, Revelation 20. And in number three, from Revelation 20 and verse 10, he will be cast out where? Into the lake of fire, which will be his permanent abode. Hell, if you will. Now there is a celebration because once Satan is expelled from heaven, there's this sense that the kingdom is coming. So notice in verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, maybe this is the voice of the martyrs, 
back in Revelation 6.10. Remember the ones who cry out, O Lord, holy and true, how long? To you avenge our blood. And notice what they are saying here. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. It's proleptic. The kingdom is not yet established, but it's as if it has been established. The idea here is that since Satan is kicked out of heaven, that the kingdom is just around the corner. And that is why we have the jubilation. And notice that's what the reason is given in verse 10. For the accuser, there's the term, of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. I love the uh, quote from Harry Ironside who was reported to often say, quote, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Let's leave the dirty work to him. That's true. He is the one who is constantly slandering the saints. Let's not follow in his footsteps. Now, down here in verse 11, this verse is also proleptic and shows the three ways that the brethren, see this is the tribulation saints, those who are going through the tribulation, now we're in the second half of the tribulations, how they overcome, how they have victory over the wicked one. These three things are worth noting. Number one, by the blood of the lamb. Yeah, we used to sing the old hymn, there is power in the blood, there is. Charles Ryrie writes, the basis is the blood of the lamb. Blood is the evidence of death. Thus, the death of Christ is the basis for all victory over Satan. How true. Jesus defeated the power of Satan through the cross. So the saints have victory by the blood of the lamb. Number two, by the word of their testimony. The saints' testimony is used throughout the tribulation to bring people to Christ. They continue to be victors even if they are martyred. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their testimony, powerful. And number three, think about this. And they did not love their lives to the death. They were totally sold out to Jesus Christ. But isn't that what we're called to? Jesus says, let a man deny himself. Let him take up his cross. See, that means to die, right? To be willing to die for Jesus. And then to constantly follow him. These saints are totally committed to Jesus Christ, many of whom will die for their faith. This period of time in the tribulation perhaps parallels what Jesus' immediate followers, his apostles, had experienced because of the persecution that was upon the saints. Now in verse 12, observe the first word in our English translation, therefore, dia tuta, uh, for this reason. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because the accuser of the brethren is hurled out of heaven. 
And then we have the expression, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea. Now don't let that woe confuse you. Uh, Back in Revelation 8 and verse 13, remember when the angel flies or an eagle, depends on your translation, through the sky and says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. That was referring to the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments. This woe here is pertaining to the saints who will experience the wrath of Satan in the second half of the tribulation. Verse 13. Let's stop and think about the heavenly warfare. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, (laughs) he might have been feeling a little bit loopy that day when Michael and his angels took him down. It's almost as if he hits the ground and he kind of shakes it off and he goes, oh, here's where I am. I I wonder how Michael took him out. You know, did he get on a tall planet and leap from the top and hit him with the elbow on the head? Did he use the sleeper hold? I don't know. But one thing I do know is that he was given the authority to kick Satan out. And all of a sudden, Satan is recognizing exactly where he is. See, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, that word cast is the same one we saw three times in Revelation 12, 9. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Uh, we learn back in Revelation 12, 4, that Satan desired to kill Jesus when he was born. Remember, we went back to Matthew chapter 2 and looked at that. Since that child, the Christ, was eventually caught up to God, remember the ascension in Acts chapter 1? Satan no longer had access to Jesus on earth, so what does he do? Now he persecutes the woman who gives birth to Jesus. That's Israel. That is who he will go after. And you know, just keep this in mind. At the beginning of the tribulation, when you look at Revelation 7, there are 144,000 Jews that are supernaturally saved, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they go out and evangelize throughout the earth. Many Jews have come to Christ in this period of time. But now concerning verse 14, Jesus had given a prediction about the flight of Israel. When you read Matthew 24, it speaks there about the Antichrist who will structure, set up the abomination of desolation, an idol that comes to life. We'll study that in chapter 13 of Revelation. And the Jews were told that when this occurs, flee to the mountains and that's what we have down here in verse 14 because it says but the woman see Israel was given two wings of a great eagle the two wings depict rapid flight Uh, God had previously bore Israel on eagles wings out of Egypt that's Exodus 19 in verse And why is she giving these two wings? That she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Where is her place? Some believe it's down in Edom, uh, in the mountains there of Petra. We don't know for sure. And notice this is where she will be nourished for how long? For a time and times and half a time. That's the second half of the tribulation, three and a half times. Years Now, verse 15 is so fascinating here. So the serpent, we know who he is. That's the devil. 
spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now put some things together here from scripture. Number one, Israel is hidden in the mountains. So does it make sense that a literal flood of water is going to go all the way up there to take them out? Now, normally when the scripture gives a term like water, I believe it means water. But do we have an Old Testament precedent that it could mean something else here in our context? Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're going to look at chapter 46, and then we're going to scoot over to chapter 47 as well. You have to remember here that the Antichrist is in charge, and I'm sure he has an army, and he would dispatch his army to go after the Jewish people because he is that dastardly. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 46, come down to verse 7. Prophecies here relating to Egypt. And verse 7 says, who is this coming up like a flood? Notice the idea of water here. Whose waters move like the rivers. Speaking here of the Egyptian conquest, they would take their army. And it was almost like water coming over a land. The army would come in and invade to try to take over. Verse 8, Egypt rises up like a flood. And its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and do what? Cover the earth, almost like the army of the Antichrist. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. So that's 46, 7, and 8. Now flip the page, Jeremiah 47. And here, uh, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah to prophet against the Philistines who uh, dwelt in the coastal plains of Judah before Pharaoh attacked Gaza. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, behold the waters, see the expression again, rise out of the north and shall be an overwhelming flood. Overflowing flood, excuse me. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. And now notice here down in verse three, showing an army. And the noise of the stamping hooves of his strong horses at the rushing of his chariots at the rumbling of his wheels the fathers will not look back for their children lacking courage the idea in both jeremiah 46 and 47 using the motif the theme of water speaks of an army that would just cover the land i think that's the idea here as well in revelation chapter 12 in verse 15 i believe it's the antichrist you know guided by satan of course that will dispatch his army to go and get israel in the mountains but god is going to protect them right so in verse 16 of chapter 12 but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Sound familiar? Reminiscent of Korah's destruction in number 16. Here the earth opens up and swallows the army of the Antichrist. 
Verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. Satan's efforts have been thwarted three times. Number one, when he tried to kill baby Jesus. Notice when he was in heaven, what happened? He got kicked out. And then, now he cannot harm Israel. So what does he do? Second half of verse 17. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. I'm just speculating here, but maybe this is referring to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Because when we transition to chapter 14, we find that they all have been martyred. So it seems as if Satan now will go after them. So back to our focus question from the beginning of this sermon. How does the Christian overcome Satan? Main point, Satan is overcome in three ways. Okay, so there are three parts to how Satan is overcome. Number one, applying the lamb's blood to your life applying the lamb's blood to your life first of all concerning salvation the way to have victory over the wicked one is to become a child of god charles spurgeon a great preacher has written morality may keep a man out of jail but the blood of jesus christ can keep him out of hell yes it's through the death of Christ that we can be born again. When we come to the realization that our Lord Jesus went to the cross, not because he had sinned, but because of our sin, and he became our substitute. When we look to the cross as Jesus, even directed Nicodemus of old. Numbers 21, when the serpents bit the people, there was a brazen pole put up. If they looked to that pole once bitten, they were healed in the same way Jesus was lifted up. That all people that would turn to him would not just be physically healed. And yes, there is, uh, if you will, uh, healing in the atonement because one day we'll all have glorified bodies. But that their souls might be saved. So very important. Have you put your faith in the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection showing that Jesus conquered death. So, number one, we see that we are to apply the Lamb's blood to our lives. Not only in salvation, but may I say to you also in sanctification. And I'm speaking now to children of God. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin so we need to stay in the light and when we stay in the light even god brings conviction upon us when we have sinned to confess our sin and that takes us to first john 1 9 if we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we apply the lamb's blood to our lives first of all in salvation and in sanctification that process of god where the holy spirit is conforming us to the image of christ number two by maintaining a vibrant christian testimony do people know that you are a child of god if you were hauled into court and the charge was you're a child of god would there be enough evidence to prove that? A vibrant Christian testimony. 
See, this comes as we walk with the Almighty. When we abide in the light, when we are obedient to the Word of God and the Spirit of God fills us for victorious living. Recall the church's first martyr, Stephen. And before Stephen became this great preacher that we read about in Acts 7, he was first chosen as one of those seven, we'll call them deacons, sort of a prototype to the deacon of today. But how was Stephen described? In Acts chapter 6, in verse 3, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now when you spring forward to chapter 7 and he's preaching a powerful message on who Christ is, the people came forward to stone him. But the description of Stephen is that he is still full of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 7 and verse 55 and was given a vision of Christ standing there ready to greet Stephen when he came home. But he had a tremendous witness because the Holy Spirit had dominated his life. We need to have the same witness. And then thirdly, the way we overcome Satan or the wicked one is loving Jesus more than life. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, probably wondering if he was going to be killed or released at that point of his house arrest. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hmm. Paul got the concept. He had practiced it. What Jesus had initially said, let a man deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. It's exactly what the apostle Paul did. He took up his cross. And he had the understanding that for him to be martyred, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. He was willing to lay his life down because he knew the one, if you will, who initially took up his own life, but that would also take the soul and the spirit, the immaterial part of us, and transport it into his presence at death. For to me, and say those words with me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's make sure we stay in the battle and again, it's not against flesh and blood. Let us understand the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6 and the need to be fully covered with the armor of God. Let us make sure that we are continuing to have victory over the wicked one. How? Through applying the Lamb's blood to your life. By number two, maintaining a vibrant Christian testimony. And number three, loving Jesus more than life. Join me in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wealth of information found in Revelation chapter 12. Not only do we get to view, have a preview, so to speak, of this future battle whereby Michael and his angels expel Satan from heaven, but to learn vital principles, timeless truths on how to be victorious in Christ. And I pray we would take those truths to heart today. And Father, that we would understand, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name I pray. Amen.